Today we're going to begin uh, or re continue with our series on talks in Galatians. And today we're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 4, verse 7. And we'll be talking about the subject of slaves to sons. So first we'll read the passage. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Oops. Not there yet, sorry. Under the influence of false teachers known as Judaizers, Galatian believers were turning from the gospel of grace to the Mosaic law, from life in the spirit, back to a life of captivity in the flesh, trying to attain and maintain right standing with God by trying to follow rules for religion and for life. One of the main themes within Paul's letters to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians is the correction of this false teaching and an appeal for the Galatian Christians to be restored to the true gospel based on faith in Jesus Christ and the life of the, in the spirit as adopted sons of God rather than on the observance of the law as a basis for righteousness before God. In previous messages over the past several Sundays, we have looked at the relationship between the law and grace and faith. Today we will be looking further at the gospel of grace and justification based on faith, the common basis of our acceptance by God in Christ and the unity that that provides, our adoption as sons of God and the inheritance that we all share in. First we're gonna look at faith and Adam Langell talked about that a few weeks back, and this, this is just sort of an elaboration on that. So, before faith, we were under guard, or imprisoned. That's how he describes it. Now, last week, Joe talked about how the Mosaic Law functioned as a guardian, as one put in charge to lead us to Christ. In Paul's day, household guardians were typically harsh disciplinarians who supervised children in all respects, allowing very little personal freedom. 
Paul portrays being under the Mosaic law as like being under a household guardian, characterized by bondage and captivity rather than freedom, in contrast to the freedom that comes through faith. He speaks of faith being revealed. Faith is a gift of God. Faith has ultimately been revealed in Christ and comes by hearing the word of God and through revelation of the Holy Spirit. A response of faith by the person to whom such revelation comes changes everything and brings freedom from the guardianship and captivity of the law. Faith brings justification. Faith is not an end in itself. It is the object of faith that justifies. Faith in and of itself is ultimately of no value unless the faith is centered on and in Jesus Christ, God's Son, who is the center and means of justification. God became a human as Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Only Jesus has satisfied the legal requirements and has enabled justification to be received by Jew and Gentile alike. Faith centered on Jesus Christ, given by God, revealed by the Spirit, and received and exercised by us, brings justification, life, and freedom. The law was never intended to accomplish this for us. Faith has come. Faith has now come as the necessary means of appropriating the justification secured for us by Jesus Christ. Now that the redeeming work of Jesus has been completed, that is, his payment for the penalty of sin for us, the requirements of the law have been fully met for those who have faith in Jesus. His substitutionary atonement, that is, his covering for our sin, and his redemption, the payment of the ransom for us, secure our justification. The people Paul was writing to, and we also, become justified by faith. Justification is not secured by our fulfillment of the law, adopting religious observances, and striving to conform to a standard, which was found to be impossible to fill anyway. Faith brings adoption and sonship. Our exercise of faith does not bring salvation from the penalty deserved by all who are otherwise found guilty under the requirements of the law. It changes everything about us. Through faith, we receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who gives us power to live the life of faith and a sense of a new identity, our new identity. Through faith in the grace and love of God offered to us through his Son, Jesus Christ, we are fully accepted by God as sons of a loving father. Before faith, we were captives, spiritually dead in sin, condemned and not sons of God. Our identity changes as we become adopted sons of God through faith. Baptism into Christ brings unity. When we are baptized into Christ, we are joined with him, united with him. The ordinance of baptism provides a great public picture of our personal association with Christ. 
In the early church, the picture may have been a bit clearer, as people being baptized removed all their clothing and entered into the waters of baptism, discreetly, probably covered, <clears throat> as a picture of removal of the old covering of of the old covering and of washing and cleansing, complete immersion under the water as a picture of joining with Christ in death and dying to the old self and rising from the water as a picture of being raised to new life in him and receiving the life-giving Holy Spirit and then putting on a new robe as a picture of being clothed with Christ. In our modern baptisms, most of the symbolism remains. We should note that the basis of, of faith is not in the ordinance of baptism itself, but rather that to which baptism bears witness. It says we have put on Christ. That we have put on Christ, as one puts on a robe, means that we are in him and clothed in his righteousness. We exchange the tattered rags of the old life for the beautiful robes of the character of Christ. The old life is, not, is gone, it's not just laundered. We are covered by him as a man is by a new garment. When we put on Christ sincerely and in faith, we are clothed in his righteousness. We enter upon a new life as children of God. In Christ, we are all accepted by God. We all, therefore, have unity of being on equal footing before God. There is nothing about anyone that justifies or makes them acceptable before God, except that they are in Christ. Religious, cultural, racial, background, gender, or social status make no difference as to our inclusion in Christ through faith, our justification, our relationship to God as Father. The context of this verse is regarding who is a true offspring of Abraham. In other words, who are the legitimate inheritors of the promise made to Abraham by God? Paul's point here is that in Christ there are no differences as to qualification for belonging to God as true sons and inheritors of the promise. Nor is there any requirement to try to secure justification and acceptance before God other than being and remaining in Christ through faith. There is no ground for excluding anyone on the basis of race, gender, or social class, and there is no need for anyone to add to the requirements to simply being in Christ. There is no basis for thinking anyone is more, a more qualified son of God. All are equally sons of God in Christ. Some have used this passage regarding the insignificant of distinctions in relation to our unity in Christ as a manifesto for the need to eliminate all gender and social distinctions within the Christian community and as an ideal for secular society. Some use it as a primary text for interpreting all other passages in the Bible regarding gender and social distinctives. However, many commentators, theologians, and scholars agree that the context of this passage is not the elimination of distinctions. The passage is focused on the inclusion without distinction and the grace and love of God, being in Christ and coming into relationship with God as a father. This provides a foundation for unity within the Christian community 
and provides a model for relational equality between members of the community in which the reality of racial, gender, and social distinctives can exist within a context of each one being equally accepted and loved as a son of God. The focus is on the relational e equity and treatment of each, not on the removal of the distinctive. The application of the teaching of the Bible is always under pressure from secular social conditions, beliefs and practices to be changed and reinterpreted. While we need to evaluate challenges to traditional understanding and application of the Bible, the challenge is also to ensure the biblical principles and truths are correctly understood and applied. The emphasis here, again, is on the unity that we have in Christ, unity such that all are equally accepted before God in Christ. All are equally justified through faith. There is no need for anyone to try to justify themselves by conforming to the Mosaic Law or to take upon themselves a set of dead works that cannot possibly secure what has already been provided in Christ. And he says we are heirs in Christ. We are in Christ and therein belong to Christ. And in Christ we are Abraham's offspring. Offspring by virtue of faith, of the promises, and because we are in Christ, we are in the seed that was promised. As Ryan pointed out a couple of weeks back, the coming of the Mosaic Law did not nullify the promise of God to Abraham. The fulfillment of that promise has come in Christ. And all who have faith in Christ and are thereby found to be in Christ are inheritors of God's promise. In Christ, we are all sons. We are all sons of God. In Christ, through ongoing and living faith, each has justification and adoption as legitimate sons, with full rights of sonship, fully having the Father's love bestowed on us in a father-son relationship as he has with Jesus Christ. We are, after all, in him. Full inclusion in the promises of God, regardless of whether or not we are Jewish or non-Jewish, whether or not we are slaves or free, sons regardless of gender. As adopted sons, we all have one father is our understanding of who our father is right? Or do we have a father image of our own that falls short of who he really is? As adopted sons, this is our father. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He's not confined to or defined by time. He's everlasting. He's infinite. He has no limits. He is not contained. He's self-existent. He depends on nothing for his existence. He is self-sufficient. He brings about his will without help or other resources. He is transcendent. He is above creation and exists apart from it as well as in it. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere at all times, but not in the sense of pantheism or panentheism, if you're familiar with those terms. 
He's incomprehensible, beyond our understanding. He's sovereign, totally in control and supreme. He does whatever he pleases. He's omnipotent. He has all the power. He can do anything. Nothing can overpower him. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He apprehends, comprehends all that was and is and will be knowable. He is immutable, unchanging. There is no decay in him. He doesn't evolve. No improvements necessary. He has no deficiencies. He is a creator. All things that exist were created by him and for him. He is holy. He is morally excellent and perfect. He is righteous. He always does what is right. He's good. God does and gives good according to his good will. He's just. He is fair in all his actions. He's wrathful. He has a hatred for unrighteousness. But he is long-suffering. His righteous anger is slow to be kindled. He is wise. His understanding and judgment is inscrutable. And he is truthful. He is a God of truth. Whatever he says or does is true. He does not lie. He is faithful. He is true to his promises. His faithfulness does not depend on ours. He is loving. He exhibits love not based on the worth or merit in the object of his love. He is jealous. He is unwilling to share what is rightfully his. And he is merciful. He shows loving kindness and compassion to those who have offended him. This is who God is and what he is like, and we get to call him Dad. We are loved by God, and God loves like no other. God is a perfect father. There is no fault to be found in his fatherly love for those who are his sons. His character and heart for his sons is always and forever loving and gracious. His discipline is for us, to shape us where we are lacking, to form us into the likeness of his begotten son, to save us from harming ourselves or others. He is faithful to us, and he is jealous for us. He is our shield and defender. He seeks out his lost sheep, and he waits for the return of the prodigal. He gives us his spirit to live in us, to give us assurance of our sonship, to help us, to teach us, to enable us to overcome temptation and sinful practices, and to live lives of righteousness, to be lights in the world. We can trust him absolutely. The Holy Spirit within us confirms, authenticates, and ratifies our sonship and gives us assurance and confidence.